For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we're in this section, it's toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. The whole, for weeks now, we've been in what they call the upper room discourse. It's this concentrated teaching of Christ as he prepares to very soon go on the cross and die for the sins of mankind. He is preparing his disciples for the next stage of the mission, of how to carry on the work with him, but without him being bodily, physically with them. He's, he's preparing them for what's ahead, explaining the idea that he is the vine and they are the branches, that they need to abide in him, that they need to be connected with him, and that he will work through them in a spiritual way, and explaining the core of their mission. The core of their mission is to go and love others the way that he loved them. And that includes in, in word and in, and in, in deed, that he needs to, they need to be willing to stand on the truth. And he warns them, a lot of people are not going to like what God has to say. They haven't liked what I've had to say, and they're not going to like what you have to say. But we need to be truthful and honest about what God has shown us, while also loving those who don't know, and loving each other, and that it's our love for one another that will really prove the truth of what God has said. So we get to John 17, and we get into a very interesting part of Scripture where the entire chapter is a prayer between Jesus and God. And so there's this last, you know, A few hours before he's going to be arrested, he has this prayer that we get to look at and and engage with in a powerful way. And you can break it into, there's lots of ways to break it down. I kind of broke it down. The the first part is about Jesus and, and his relationship to the Father. The second part is about the disciples and his prayers for them. And then finally, we get Jesus's prayer for us for all future generations of the people that the disciples would reach. Uh, He prays for them as well. Uh, Warren Wearsby, in his book, in his commentary on John, writes that whether he prayed in the upper room or en route to the garden, this much is sure. It is the greatest prayer ever prayed on earth and the greatest prayer recorded anywhere in Scripture. John 17 is certainly the holy of holies of the gospel record, and we must approach this chapter in a spirit of humility and worship. To think that we are privileged to listen in as God the Son converses with his Father just as he is about to give his life as a ransom for sinners. No matter what events occurred later that evening, this prayer makes it clear that Jesus was and is the overcomer. He was not a victim. He was and is the victor. Be of good cheer, he had encouraged his disciples. I have overcome the world. The world, the word world is used 19 times in this prayer, so it's easy to see the connection between the prayer and John 16.33. If you and I will understand and apply the truths revealed in this profound prayer, it will enable us to be overcomers too. And I think that he does a good job there of explaining the importance of this of this passage and of this moment to actually look in and look at a detailed conversation between Jesus and the Father hours before 
he goes to the cross. So we start in verse 1, and it reads, Jesus spoke these things. He'd been saying all these things to them about, about being the vine. He's the, he's the vine, and they're the branches, and he'd been giving them all this teaching. And then lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And so in this first section that's really about Jesus and the Father, we got a lot of really important theological truths that are worth taking note of. Facts and perspectives that have to do with the connection and the identity of Jesus and the Father. And one of the big ideas here is he says that I've come to, I want you, God, to glorify me, which I don't know if you've ever prayed that. Uh, I would certainly think it wouldn't be a great idea. You know, it's, it's not really God's job to glorify us. But the word glorify in the Greek is doxa, and it has a range of meaning. It means to praise, extol, magnify, celebrate. And I think part of the essence of what Jesus is praying here has to do with this idea of magnify. It's show more clearly who I am. To glorify, in a sense, is to reveal the true nature of someone. To the, to, so that people would see more clearly who we really are. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, as I go to the cross, reveal me. Let people see the heart of who I am. Jesus has just told them, greater love can no one have than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And as he goes to lay down his life, his prayer is that they would see more clearly the reality of who he is. And then he also recognizes that as he is glorified, as they understand more clearly who he is, that everyone paying attention, everyone watching then, will also understand and see more clearly who God is. Is God the grumpy old man in the sky who's just waiting for us to mess up so he can throw lightning bolts at us? Is he indifferent, disengaged, and unconcerned with the events of man? Or is he the God that comes and dwells among us in flesh and takes the penalty for our sin upon himself? As they look at Jesus and understand who he is, he is God. Then they understand more deeply when God says, I am loving and merciful and compassionate, they can understand in a new level, at new heights, by the demonstration of the cross, the greatness of God's love. And Jesus is saying, really what this is, in a big way, the entire theme of the book of John is that as we look at who Christ is, we learn about who God is. And what we see in Christ is love. We also see clearly that Jesus is claiming to have been given the sovereignty of God. He says, even as you gave him, meaning me, authority over all flesh... Jesus is not saying, I am a rabbi, I'm a teacher, I'm a prophet. He's saying, I have been given authority by the Father over all life. And the result of that authority, the result of that is, I have come and I have the power to grant eternal life. For a human being to make a claim like this, to say, well, you know, you're a good teacher or a good prophet, it's just, this is outside of the bounds of what good people claim. 
Only God would have the authority. Only God would have the ability to do this. He goes on and says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He says, I've been given authority over all life, and I've been given the authority to grant eternal life, and the way to eternal life is to know the one true God. God is one. There is only one. He's the God of the Bible. And the only way to eternity, he says, is through knowing him and knowing Jesus Christ. That he includes himself as a prerequisite for having eternal life. It's knowing him. So there is one God, but that God encompasses Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so we get into how deep and how how wonderful this is to connect with issues that are repeated and discussed all over Scripture, but are there then very concentrated here. He says, I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Again, I have done and I have revealed who God is by the way I have lived my life. He's saying, listen, if you want to know about God, read about me, look at the historical record of who I was, how I treated people, and how I went to the cross. And that will magnify, that will glorify, that will clarify this question, is God good? Does God love us? The answers are all there. He says, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You know, there are times that people will say things like, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, and that's totally wrong. We've seen that again and again in the book of John. And it's like, well, this is an invention of the disciples later that they're, you know, if you look at the gospels, Jesus never claimed this. Well, right here, what do you have? You have Jesus saying, I existed. This is Jesus saying himself, I existed before the creation of the world, and I was glorious. And he's saying, take me home. Restore me to where I was before I came here and restore my glory. A really powerful claim for the reality of Jesus being God. So we get all this deep theology, but then we get to 719 and we start seeing now this is the passing of the torch to the disciples. This is Jesus' prayer for them. And let's start in verse 11. He says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. And so what he's doing is he's praying for them, and he's saying, I've been with them, but I am returning to you, and yet we want to keep them in our common identity, in the common unity of who we are. This is about unity and intimacy. This is about God's intimacy and unity with Christ. He says, you and I, Father, are one. But this is also about all of humanity and our unity and intimacy with one another. The vision that God puts forward here is that the entire human race would be one. One people 
one heart, one purpose, one value, in the same way that Jesus and the Father are one. A picture for the reality of God's plan, how that we would be a reflection of the greatness of his unity. If you go all the way back to Genesis and the creation of man, it says that we were created in the image of God. In the image of God, he created us. Male and female, he created us in God's image. And what that picture is, is that we're supposed to reflect something of the majesty and the greatness of who he is. And one of those aspects is the unity among the Godhead, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. And we, even though we are individuals, we're made to be one. This unity, he says, is a unity in purpose. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 2, 1 through 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, that's what you call a wind-up, Right? It's like, if, 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 like, it's just like a pitcher just getting ready to, you know, it's like, if there is anything of value at all, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose, that the human race would be connected in agreement on what matters, why we're here, the value that we have. And that we would all view one another as having the same value as ourselves. That's the picture of the way that things are supposed to be. That we would be united. It's not that we lose our individuality. It's not that, you know, we all dress the same, talk the same, look the same, eat the same foods. None of that. No, we are supposed to be individuals. Just as Jesus is individual from the Father and the Holy Spirit from Jesus and the Father. But they are one being and we are supposed to be individual expressions of the same value, the same love, and the same purpose. That all people have the same value in the family of God. Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians 12, 27. He says, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. This is a picture that's often put together that, that the, the, all believers all over the world are Christ's body. Christ is the head of the body. He's the leader. He's the one who guides. But all of us make up all the different individual parts. And if you are all parts of a body, then no part has more glory or more honor than any other. He goes on in 12, 1 Cor 12, 18 to say, but now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? If we were all eyes or all ears or all noses, the body would be useless. But now there are many members, but one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And the point is, is what if we viewed one another this way? We saw that we were different. We have different gifts, different abilities, different functions. But that we are all so interconnected in such an organic way that we couldn't imagine that one would not be the same in value as another. That we would be able to connect with one another, appreciate one another, and work together toward a common purpose and a common goal. 
And he prays for not just their unity, but their intimacy. He says, God, let my closeness with you be as a model for their closeness with one another, which seems almost a completely unattainable thing when you consider how hard it is for us to get along with each other. How we look, we tend to look at the differences between us and see those as a negative, as something unknown, as something scary, as as something we don't like. But it's those differences that make us strong, that make us whole and complete. We are all, each and every one of us, incomplete on our own. But you put us together in a community and we have everything that we need. And that intimacy requires being real with each other, connected with each other, trusting each other, spending time together, sharing in our struggles with one another. See, we all want to put on a a facade and pretend that we don't need anybody, that we have our life together and isn't my life something to be admired, isn't my life something that you should strive for. But the reality is, is no one's life is that way. We are all made to need one another. And when we fake it with each other, we shut down the possibility of benefiting from one another's strengths. So we need to be honest. Talk about what's really going on in our lives. We need to make time for each other. We need to actively pursue enjoyment of our relationships with other people in order to have the unity and the intimacy that God envisions and that Jesus prays for his disciples. It says in verse 13, but now I come to you And and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And so we talked some about this last week, this idea of the world system. He's not saying the whole world. He's talking specifically about the cosmos, the system in place to deceive people from the truth of God and to create hostility towards the values of God. This is an active attack on what God says is real, that when God says consider the needs of others is more important than yourself, the world says that's ridiculous, no one can live that way, and you'll just be taken advantage of and used. When God says, no greater love can a man have than this than to lay down his life for his friends, they say that's ridiculous because you only have one life and that's all there is and once you die, you cease to exist. So what's the value of giving the one thing you have away? There's a conflict of values because there's a disagreement about who is God. The natural man without God wants to act and live and believe as though he is God. I will decide what's right and wrong. I will decide how to live my life. I don't need anybody. And frankly, other people should serve me. And God then says, actually, I'm God, and I'm good, and I'm loving, but you are not God, and I will explain to you the way that the world really works because I created it and I owned it. But I will reveal the truth to you, and you have an incredibly important and valuable role to play within that plan, but that role is not sitting on the throne. And we say, well, that's not who I want to be. And we have this tension. 
And the source of this tension, the source of the hate, Jesus reveals right here, the reason these people, my followers, will be hated, well, one, we talked about last week, Christians judging and looking down at others. And that's not built into the system. That's Christians failing over and over again to represent who God really is. But what he says is, is done rightly, those who carry my word will be hated. And it's God's word that is the occasion for the hatred. That as the world looks at the things of God where God claims, I am God and you are not, and I have an opinion about the way that you should be living your life. I have an opinion about how you should prioritize your life. And I have an opinion about things like morality and the things that matter most. When that angers us, and many of us here, myself included, have to admit that when we first heard those things, as non-Christians, that God had opinions about how we should live our lives, it made us angry. It seemed unjust, and it seemed suspicious. Now, many of us, as we began to study it more and to look at the evidence that was around it, came to believe, oh my God, I just found out the craziest thing. I am not God. (laughs) And we're still, frankly, trying to live in that truth that we sometimes forget. But we did come to a place where we understood that there was something greater than ourselves. And then we became grateful to learn that that something is the God of the Bible who is loving, who is merciful, and who is good. But there are those who are still in that place where they either have been misled by false claims about what Christianity is, or they've been misled by sinful Christians misrepresenting who God really is, or they've come to realize the truth of what God has said, I am God and you are not, and they are mad. And they are mad at the messenger, who at first was Jesus Christ, and now are his followers. And that there is an innate conflict between the values of God and the values of the world. And that as his followers, we are supposed to represent his values to a world that hates them. He says in verse 15, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am of the world. And so there's a picture here of, you know, these people, their perspective and their values and what they believe has, be, has been changed to be more consistent with what God thinks, but the world is at war with what God thinks. And so you might think, you know, extraction is the way to go. So you become a Christian and God's like, awesome, and he's going to get you out of here because you're in a hostile environment now. But Jesus prays very clearly, don't take them out. Don't remove them from the world. Because God works in community, and as God reveals who he is, he wants to recruit us who begin to understand who he is to be his representatives. And if he takes us out, then there will be no one here to demonstrate and to show and to prove the truth and the value of God and his ways. 
We talked last week that there's a lot of Christians that say, okay, we're going to be in the world, but not of the world. But that means we're going to build a tall wall. We're going to segregate and we're going to build a ghetto. We're going to have our own schools and our own clothes and our own music and our own way of talking. And yeah, sure, people can come in if they think that they want to be like us. But we have to protect ourselves and our children from the evil in the world around us. But what would be the value of that? From the perspective of Jesus' prayer, don't take them out of the world. Leave them in the world. But protect them from evil. Protect them from the evil one which simply just means keep them distinct. Can you be distinct without being separate? C.S. Lewis in his great book, Screwtape Letters, talks about the the world system and the rulers of the world system, the enemies of God. It's a great little book. It's fiction, but it's him imagining how the rulers of this world might correspond with one another as they seek to bring about our destruction. And so these are two demons who are talking about a brand new Christian that they're trying to destroy. And they write things about the church. And in one section it says, they're writing, one is writing to another, he says, we want the church to be small. Not only that fewer men know God, but also that those who do acquire the uneasy intensity and the defensive self-righteousness of a secret society or a clique. The plan of the world system, this is where C.S. Lewis is so right on this, the plan of the world system is to make the church exclusive, small, strange, outside of culture, and weird. How do you think he's doing in that battle? It's our job, he says, to be in the world, but not of the world, to be connected but different, not segregated, but integrated, but also not assimilated, meaning that we become just like everybody else. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. You see what he's saying? He's saying, look, I told you not to hang out with these immoral people, but I didn't mean immoral non-Christians. Because what would be the point of separating you out from immoral non-Christians? You don't protect yourselves from them. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person. That we are held and we are to hold ourselves to a higher moral standard. But not the world that doesn't know or agree with the values of God. We are to stay in the world while disagreeing with the world about what is true. And while holding ourselves and not others to a higher moral standard. And this is what much of the world reacts to is, this is where the crux of a lot of this conflict is, is we tend to hold ourselves to a lower standard and hold the rest of the world to a higher standard than what we ourselves can, can keep. That's why we're known as hypocrites. That's why we're known as judges. But imagine 
if we, under grace and the love of God, held ourselves to a higher standard and then proceeded into the world with no judgment whatsoever for the way that people were living because they have not agreed on the values that we should live by. And we went out as a demonstration of God's values in a way that would show people the truth of who God is. We should seek to be a blessing to those outside the family of God. This verse is a very interesting verse. So in this case, this is an Old Testament verse, and Israel's been invaded by the Babylonians, and a bunch of people from Israel have been captured and dragged back to Babylon. And Babylon is a godless society. It's a very immoral society. They have all kinds of false gods that they worship and all kinds of terrible practices. It's a highly immoral place. And the prophet Jeremiah writes to them for them to understand how God wants them to act as strangers in a foreign land. You know, they've been besieged, conquered, captured, and dragged into this society. And you might think, you know, the idea would be to start an insurgency and a rebellion to figure out how to do guerrilla warfare and tear down the government from within. But instead, he writes to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become fathers of sons and daughters and seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. It's the kind of thing that God does, right? Now this command is specifically for the Israelites who are captured in Babylon. But it's absolutely the same as what Jesus is describing about his followers. You are now expatriates. Your citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven. Yet you are still here on earth and you are in hostile territory and you will be blamed and you will be hated if you accurately stand on the truth of what God has taught. And your call and your job is to seek the welfare of those people and to prove the goodness of God by the way that you stand up in truth and love in the midst of a hostile environment. Jesus said something very similar in Matthew 5.14. He said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine and the way that you love one another and the way that you treat people and in the good things that you do. And people will look at that and they will realize what God is like. That's the mission. Titus 2.10 says, Don't pilfer, but show all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Go out and do good deeds accompanied with the reason why you are doing them. The motivation of I am a Christian and I am here to help. I am here to serve. I am here to love. And I am here to to make a difference. And that will adorn the doctrine where people will understand 
How can all these things that I've been told about how hatred they are, how full of hate they are, and how exclusive they are, and how judging they are, how can that lie hold truth in an environment where everybody knows a Christian who's a very loving person, who's very willing to move towards people with different values and different views and give them love? That's the challenge. The challenge is is that the natural man is offended by God's word. I was highly offended by God's word. I had all kinds of problems with the idea of an all-powerful God, the problem of evil. If God is so loving and God is so powerful, how can you know, there be evil in the world? And how could a loving God ever judge anybody? All of those things were at the root of my hatred for God's word. And the problem was I had never, ever in my life read God's word. I had only heard what other people had said about the inconsistencies there and the problems there. I had very strong opinions about it without understanding it at all. And these are the people that we are called to reach and to love and to demonstrate the goodness of God and the trustworthiness of God through our behavior both in words and in action. Jesus says, I send you forward to shine your light. And how do we do that? One key aspect of this has to be that we have to do it together. Everything that he has said is go forth and you go, but it's in the face of community. How can you lay down your life for your friends if you have no friends? How can you consider the needs of others as more important than yourself if you've never considered the needs of others? We need each other. We are to be one as Jesus and the Father are one. And that means spending time together, getting to know each other, investing in each other. And it means we need God. We invite him into our lives. We open the door as he knocks on our hearts and asks to come into our lives. We recognize that we are not God and that we need help. We are broken. And we turn to God in faith and we say, I don't know about everything, but I do know that I'm broken, that I am a sinner, and that I need forgiveness. And Jesus, I ask you into my heart and into my life so that I can begin to be healed and to know what it is to have a relationship with you. That's the first step. The second step is then to connect with other people that have made that same decision. Other sinful, messy, broken people that have agreed that they are not God. And then we have to get into community so that our love for one another can be demonstrated. And we need to spend time together. We need to serve together. You know, if you're here and you're not a part of one of our home groups, one of our home Bible studies, I'd really encourage you to seek that out because how well can we do community here? How real can we be with one another? There's a limit to what you can do in a room with 600 people in it in terms of intimacy and connectedness. 
which is why we always say home groups are more important because you get down into a group of 20 or 30 people and you can really begin to invest in each other's lives and reach out. We have to build in deeply with one another. We, as I said before, we have to be honest and we have to make time. And this is going to cut into your Netflix time. This is going to cut into your golf and your video game time. This is going to cut into a lot of different things. But the question is, is what's more important? That you be entertained or that you be connected in loving relationships with others? Which will lead you to a more joyful and purposeful life? We also need to be sure that we don't hide the truth. It would be very nice to have groups of people getting together and smiling and loving and going out and serving. But if we don't tell people why, we don't tell people what's at the heart of what it is that we're doing, then we're likely to confuse them into thinking there is a way to be happy and joyful without God. We have to put God at the front and center of what we're doing in those relationships. We need to share boldly but sensitively, not hiding our light but letting it shine out there and risking the rejection and risking the hate while giving no cause or no offense for it other than the word of God itself. We need to be freely admitting our own faults. I am a sinner. It's not that I was a sinner. It's that I am. And I struggle and I I wrong people and I lie and I lose my temper and I do things that I'm ashamed of and thank God that he has forgiven me just as he wants to forgive you. We need to invite people to come and see, to come and participate and understand what it is that we're talking about here, whether it be here on Sunday morning or at your home group. We need to invite people to come out and experience this. Most of the people that you invite, you say, hey, do you want to come to my Bible study? They're like, mm-mm, no way. <laughs> but the thing is, is you have to understand that what's in their head is probably not the reality of your group. Ask yourself, if that person came just once to see what it is that's happening in your home group, how might that change their perception of what it is that they're connecting with? And maybe we need to share that with people as well. Listen, I know that when I say, do you want to come into my Bible study, it sounds like I'm asking you to the most terrible thing ever. <laughs> but this is something that's really different. And if, if you've looked at my life and you see anything different than what you thought about Christians, you should come to my Bible study and see a whole bunch of people that are living in a way that would surprise people with what they think about Christians. And that might bring down some walls. We also have to go out and engage people where they are. We can't just expect them to come to us. We have to go where they are. 1 John 3, 17 and 18 says, But whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. That's what's really missing in a lot of, <coughs> in a lot of contexts is, we are loving in theory, but when it comes to serving and getting out there, we're doing very little to help people. How do we do that? Well, you can go to the Xenos website. 
Let's pull up the website right now and talk about it for a minute. Did you know that there's a thing on our website? You go to www.zenos.org ministry. These are ministries, and just so scroll down. These are ministries that you can click on with a description and the contact information if you would like to get involved and if you would like to help. These are just the ministries in the church where you can be involved, and these ministries are often connected with helping people. And then if you go up to the top, there's community service. This is stuff outside of Xenos, where you can get out and click on one of these links and say, hey, I would like to volunteer. I would like to help people. I would like to spend some of my time, a couple of hours a week, making a difference in our community and in our city. And if we scroll back up to the top once more, and you go to advanced search, check this out, you can just answer a few questions. Are you willing to be trained? No. <laughs> Are you looking for a one-time you know, project or an ongoing commitment? When do you want to do the work? What is the nature of the work? You can answer all these questions, and it'll narrow down the options according to what it is that you're looking for so that you can get involved. Here's another idea. You can go here. I hear it's very useful. You could type in volunteer in Columbus, Ohio, and you'll get a page like this with just dozens and dozens and dozens of organizations that have just put it out there. We need help. We need people to show up and help us. And in some ways, this is even better because, you know, it's getting outside. This is going outside to where people are and bringing the light of God and the love of God and the truth of God into that environment. Jesus' prayer closes for all future generations of believers. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's us. That you may all be one even as, that they may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. It's a huge, huge responsibility. But it's so clear as we read this that God's entire strategy for reaching lost people, a huge, important part of how he wants to do that is through us. And many of us here have been faithful in that, and many of us here have come to Christ because other people have been faithful in that. And there are many wonderful examples. But we also live in a time where the hostility has grown and the misconceptions and the misunderstandings and the hypocrites and the false Christianity has reached a high pitch. And it's all the more important as biblical followers of Jesus Christ that we push against those lies and dedicate ourselves to being the counterexample of what people expect when they think about a Christian. So again, to close the point, it is God's love that defines him. God is love. Jesus' whole message, Jesus' whole life, Jesus' whole purpose was mercy and love. It is Christ's love that saves us 
and reveals to us God's glory. We know how great God is because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And yet it is our love for others that God says is the greatest evidence for who he is. And that is something that we need to come together and in earnest demonstrate around the world. God, uh, you are amazing, and your word uh, never fails. We know that um, there's a lot of controversy and there's a lot of pain and that our culture in a lot of ways seems more divided than it has been in a really long time. But we do see an opportunity to be the voice of love and compassion for all sides, that we could step into the chaos and serve and give kindness and stand on the truth. And we ask God that you'll show us how we can, how we can be in that place in the middle of the calamity where we could be a, a refuge for those who are really seeking community and love and who are really interested in understanding truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.